Good morning. Please turn with me to John 5, 31 through 47, for the reading of God's word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Miss Brittany's on vacation this week, so I'm going to ask Mr. Ian, one of our elders, if he will guide the children across the way for children's worship. If you're visiting here with us today, we'll invite you to walk over with your kids, help get them settled, and get all the pertinent information about your children's needs to our volunteers. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church culture that emphasized something that they called witnessing. Uh, any of you all grow up in that kind of world? You grew up hearing that language used? Yeah. So witnessing uh, was just another word for telling people about Jesus. Uh, it was not uncommon um, as a child to go door-to-door witnessing, to go knocking on doors, talking to people about Jesus. We'd be encouraged to witness with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, to share the gospel functionally. And in today's text, Jesus talks about witnessing. But not exactly the same way. The text begins with Jesus saying, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony, or the Greek word can also be translated witness, my self-witness is not true. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's just finished a whole monologue that we've talked about for the last two weeks about his relationship with God the Father. And the implication of what Jesus has just said is that Jesus Christ understood himself to be equal with God. In fact, that he was 
the very Son of God. So following that bold teaching, Jesus follows up and says, Well, everything that I've just said, don't take my word for it. If I were to bear witness to myself, you wouldn't believe me. And that wouldn't stand up in court. But it's not just me that says this. I have other witnesses. I have other people who will vouch for me that this is my relationship to God the Father. Other witnesses who will argue that all this wild stuff that I just said is actually true. But who are these witnesses to which Jesus pointed, those who would vouch for his words? If you look in the back of your worship guide, there's a space to take notes. And I've actually just typed out for you the four witnesses to which Jesus points in this text. So the four witnesses were these. First, his own lifestyle and works. He said, you can see the truth of what I say in what I do. Jesus not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. Again, that might not stand up in court. You need more than that in Jewish law and even in modern law. So here are three other witnesses who could testify that what Jesus said was true. So here's the next three that are in your worship guide. First was John the Baptist preaching. He vouched for Jesus. Second or third, rather. God the Father's work in Jesus and in the hearts of people. So what God the Father did was a witness. And then fourth, the scriptures, and in particular, Moses. So while uh, Jesus' own lifestyle vouched for the truth of his words, he had other witnesses as well. Moses had written about him in the Old Testament. The other prophets in the Old Testament had talked about Jesus. John the Baptist had preached about Jesus. He had all these human witnesses who would vouch for Jesus's words. But the greatest witness who argued for the truthfulness of Jesus's words was God the Father himself. But why does Jesus need all these witnesses? Why does it matter that what Jesus said is true? <laughs> because the things he were saying, he was saying were a matter of life and death even eternal life and death. Look at verses 32 through 34, and then we'll jump down to verse 39. Verse 32, he says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that, why? What does it say? So that you may be saved. It's important that you realize what I'm saying is the truth. So that you may be saved. Now jump down to verse 39. Speaking to the Jews here. You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. That you may have life. Jesus makes a radical claim. That eternal life, that salvation from the guilt of our sin, from the punishment of our sin, is available only through him. So if Jesus is a liar, it doesn't matter what he says. No big deal. If Jesus is out of his mind, no worries. Just ignore him, right? But if he's right, this teaching is very important. Because Jesus says, your life matters. 
What you do in this life matters and how you respond to him matters. Every one of us in this life has to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. Do we believe he's telling the truth and trust him? Or do we call him a liar or a lunatic? Every one of us has to come to terms with this in this life. So how, do we, how can we tell whether he's telling the truth or not? We have these witnesses. These witnesses demonstrate that Jesus can be trusted so that people will believe in him and be saved. As it turns out, the word witness is an appropriate word when you're talking about people who don't trust Jesus yet. Coming to trust Jesus, being saved, receiving eternal life. All these words that Jesus Jesus uses. But let's think about that notion for a moment. Here's the first blank in your worship guide if you want to fill it in. Regardless of your individual evangelistic abilities, seeing the lost saved should be a desire that defines our lives and community. Regardless of your individual evangelistic abilities, seeing the lost saved should be a desire that defines our lives and community. This should be a a desire in our hearts that we want people who don't know Jesus, who don't have eternal life, who don't know forgiveness of sins, that we want them to be saved. So the idea of going door to door and talking to strangers about Jesus, that probably doesn't appeal to many of you. If any of you, honestly, I don't even really get that much of a kick out of doing it. As a kid, it was really weird and awkward and and, and bizarre. The idea of speaking uh, of you, speaking in front of a big group of people about Jesus, about the gospel, that might be totally outside of your comfort zone. Guess what? That's okay. That's all right. Not every Christian is gifted and called to be an evangelist. Not every Christian is called to be a a, a preacher. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your heart. Your compassion for the people around you. The people you know, your friends and family, who don't know Jesus. Does your heart break? Know that they don't... They don't have the the love of God that you have. That they aren't free from their guilt and shame. That they have this need to to, to prove themselves and to to make themselves worthy of of love. Yesterday, a group of us gathered at the bowling's house and we had a time of praying for the people in our life that don't trust Jesus. And I heard people in this room weeping for their kids and grandkids, siblings, their friends don't know Jesus, does our heart break for the lost? And does that love, that desire, does it shape our lives? Is that desire for people who don't know Jesus to trust Jesus, is that desire shaping our community life, the things that that we do together? What do we want to be as a church? Do we want to reach the people that don't know Jesus? Do we want people who don't know Jesus to trust Jesus? The reason we were gathered praying yesterday is that our elders believe that this is a defining characteristic of a good church, a biblical church, that we would want the lost to be saved, that that would be a desire. But do we? 
Is that a community desire that we have? And is that a desire that each of us has in our hearts? Not only that we'll see the lost saved through our church, but that you will be a key part of that process. That you have a role to play in the lost meeting Jesus. But before we get into that, let's be really, really, really practical, okay? Who do you actually know that isn't a Christian? I want you to pick up a pen or a pencil, even if you don't take notes normally. They're, they should be in the back of your chairs there, or in your purse or your pocket or wherever. We're going to write down some names in your worship guide. And there's two reasons for writing these names down. First, I want you to contextualize our conversation. When we're talking about people who don't believe in Jesus, I want you to be able to envision their faces in your mind. We're not talking about stereotypical, hypothetical people. We're talking about real people that you know. Real people that you love. So I want you to see their faces. The second reason we're writing them down is to give you a list of names to be praying for. And we'll get to that in a minute. So let's answer the question, whom do you know that's not a Christian? So first, here's the first question you can answer. Which children in your family or in your church have not yet professed faith in Christ? Which children in your family or your church have not yet professed faith in Christ? So write their names down. I need a pencil too. It can be your own kids, your grandkids, your uh, nieces or nephews, your grandchildren, your cousins. It could be covenant children here at FPC. So who are they? Write their names down. Folks still writing, so I'll give you time. All right, so here's the second, second question. You've got to continue filling that one in. That's okay. I don't want to miss any of those little ones. Second, which of your other family or close friends have not yet professed faith in Christ? So this is not acquaintances. These are people that you have a deeper relationship. There's, a, there's trust in that relationship. So who of your close friends or family have not yet professed faith in Christ? So go ahead and take a moment and write uh, their names down. Friday. Now, for this last group, we're going to get a little more marginal. Um, so, which coworkers, neighbors, or like next door neighbors, neighborhood neighbors, or other more casual friends have not yet professed Christ? So, you might not know because these relationships are more casual. The relationship may not be that deep. But I bet you have some idea of the faith of your classmates at school. Your boss, your direct reports, your next-door neighbors. If you, know for, if you don't know for sure that some of our neighbors, uh, you can put a question mark. If they said, I hate Jesus, you know, well, then you know they're not a Christian. So, you know, you have to kind of gauge it. But go ahead and write down their names, or you can leave it blank if you can't think of any acquaintance for sure. All right, so now when we're talking about the lost, we're talking about unbelievers, we're not talking about some anonymous boogeyman, some stereotypical freak show, you know, from a movie or something. We're talking about somebody you know. So 
somebody with, uh, that, that you love and respect, somebody with uh, real li- a real life with real problems, real desires, and real dignity. If you have nobody on your list yet, I'm going to encourage you to go back to your first question because there are children in our church who have not yet professed faith. Little ones who need your love, your attention, your prayers. Uh, that may be your whole uh, mission field uh, if you have all those other blanks are, are empty. And that's fantastic. Us parents would love to have you coming alongside us and encouraging our little ones to trust Jesus. But in the end, I hope that you see that unbelievers or lost people, these kind of heavy church words overshadow how precious these people are to God. How precious they should be to us. These are people with real dignity. And, and I bet you might not be excited about reaching the faceless lost person. But when you look at these names, you care about these people. You do want them to be forgiven of their sins. You do want to spend all eternity with these people. When it gets real, personal, relational, I would expect that every Christian in this room actually does have a desire that these people that you've written down, you do have a desire that they would be saved. So look over your list and ask the question, what witness will demonstrate to these people that what Jesus said was true? What witness will invite these people to trust Christ and in him to find eternal life? The answer might just be you. Because you're the puzzle piece connected to all these names on your worship guide. But how could you possibly reach these folks for Christ? How could you be a witness that what Jesus said was actually true? Well, this is at the point of the sermon when the guilt and the nervousness kicks in. Because you're expecting me now to say, all right, folks, y'all get out there and you start witnessing. You start telling these people about Jesus. That will be a part of my sermon today. But Jesus doesn't only have one witness in this text. He has four. And as a result, the theme that I take away from this text is multifaceted. Reaching the lost isn't something that only happens through one practice, evangelism, telling people about Jesus. No, there's more. Reaching the lost actually happens in a cross-section between four different practices that I see in this text. So you might be good at some of these practices and bad at others. That's okay. Because we have four different practices that you can participate in to reach these folks for Christ. These people that you've written down that you love. So what are those four practices? They're printed in blue if you want to skip ahead and see all four of them typed out. I'm going to tell you what they are. We're going to go back and fill them in. So the first is gospel conversations. The second is preaching in the context of community. The third is gospel living. And the fourth is prayer. Prayer for the work of God's spirit. Every one of these four things is an essential part of reaching the lost. So you might think, I can't talk to these people about Jesus. I don't know what to do about that. Okay, great. Can you do the other three things? Or even just one of them. Here's my concern. That in my preaching, I have overly narrowed this conversation so that every time we talk about reaching the lost, you think, oh, that's about me telling another person about Jesus. 
And most people don't want to have those conversations, so they don't, and they don't do the three other practices as well. And as a result, our relationships with unbelievers have no redemptive component whatsoever because we think there's only one way to reach the lost, when in fact there are several different ways. So what I'm trying to do is expand this notion in your head of how can you reach the lost so it doesn't feel so high pressure, so impossible, and so that you can introduce a more redemptive aspect of these relationships. So here's what I want to do. I want to draw the dots, connect the dots between our text and these four practices, and then I want you to consider how you can be using these four different practices to engage with the people whose names you've written down today. Okay? So reaching the lost happens in the cross-section between four different practices. So let's start with the one that you already expected and that you likely have the most hesitation about, which is gospel conversations. What is a gospel conversation? Here's your next blank. Gospel conversations are personal discussions about the content and relevance of the Bible or Christian faith. Gospel conversations are personal discussions about the content and relevance of the Bible or Christian faith. So I'm not talking about a high-pressure sales pitch. That's actually my, my issue with door-to-door witnessing that, that I used to do. It was always very awkward, and it never, we never really had a conversation. People were trying to get these 12-year-olds off their front doorstep. I'm talking about two friends or two family members, you and one of the people on this page, sitting down and just talking about each other's perceptions of the Bible or Christian faith, asking them what they think, asking them why, and just trying to understand them, and then sharing what you believe. So I'm not talking about you being an expert and answering every question that somebody has. I'm not talking about you convincing anybody of anything. It's just saying what you believe, why you believe it, asking questions about what someone else believes, having a healthy dialogue, a gracious dialogue. Talk about the Bible, talk about the Christian faith, just like you talk about your work, your friends, or your favorite sports team. If Jesus is a real part of your life, then talk about him that way. It shouldn't be that weird or or that hard. In our text, we see two particular topics of conversation that are helpful to discuss with our unbelieving friends and family because they demonstrate the truth of what Jesus said. Here's your next blank. Some of the best gospel conversations revolve around the life of Jesus or the impact of sin on all of us. Some of the best gospel conversations revolve around the life of Jesus or the impact of sin on all of us. Let's look at verse 36, and then we'll jump down to verse 45. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. So the things Jesus did argued for the truth of what he said. Now jump down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe his words? So when Jesus is pointing to uh, the witnesses that validated his message, he pointed out his own life and works. He walked the walk. And he also pointed out Moses. So if you see the things that Jesus did, namely his resurrection and miracles, well, that would validate the truth of what Jesus said. But Moses did too. 
How does Moses validate Jesus' claims when he lived thousands of years before Jesus? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books are called the law. And the law works like a mirror. When you read the first five books of the Bible, you see yourself. You learn a lot about yourself. Because what do we find in those first five books of the Bible? First of all, Moses says, there's one coming that's greater than me. He will lead you in the way of God. So he foretold that Jesus would come, but there's more than that. When we read in those books the sin of Adam and his wife, a sin that's passed on to their children, we see us, don't we? When we see generation after generation of humans ruining relationships, messing up communities, destroying themselves and others because of a deep inwardness that they can't fix. We see us. And then in the middle of these five books, God shows up. And he offers forgiveness for their destructive sins through the death of a spotless lamb. And then God gives them his commandments to show them how to live. But even then... After the death of a lamb and a receiving of the law, the people still aren't fixed. Even worshipers of the one true God consistently screw things up. There's some radical brokenness within them that just can't be fixed. And when a person looks into the law, what do they learn about themselves? Not only their need of forgiveness, but a deep inward need of cleansing and healing. Something that no religion and no works can accomplish. Something that was only accomplished through the death of Jesus. The people whose names you wrote down earlier, they know something's wrong with the world. They know that something is wrong with them. We live in a world that is very similar to Jesus's, where people are motivated to do good, to be good, to make things better. And the more we do it, what do we do? We just jack it up. We mess it up worse. And so we find ourselves living in this fantasy world. Maybe something I do will fix me. Some good intentions, some religion I pick up. And in the end, we do still die. Eventually, we have to face that. These are hard things that that people are grappling with. Go watch any movie or TV show that's come out recently and you see this deep angst that there's something really messed up with our world and and we just can't fix it. You have the answer. The void in your heart has been filled. If you're resting in the gospel, you know there's nothing left for you to achieve so that you are able to simply rest in what Christ has accomplished. And so the people you know, they may feel guilt and shame and existential pain. You have the answer. So why don't you tell them what you've experienced? Tell them what you know about the life of Jesus. Tell them about your own sin, your own guilt, your own struggle, and how God is addressing that slowly and how he's putting this broken image back together again in you. These conversations have to happen somehow. Our unbelieving friends have to hear, what is the problem? It's sin. And what's the solution? It's Jesus Christ. And the best way for them to see it is for you to be honest. 
Just real honest about who you are and where you've been, the struggles you've had. Bleed a little bit. Let them see who you really are and who your Savior really is to you. It's not a a high-pressure sales pitch. It's a moment of deep intimacy and honesty and risk where you open up and confess your sins and your need of a Savior. You knew these conversations needed to happen, though. For some of you, these conversations have been happening. I know for a fact that some of you are having these conversations with your unbelieving friends at work and at home and in your neighborhood. But I'm trying to expand your vision beyond these conversations. They do need to happen. But reaching the lost happens in a cross-section between four different practices. One is gospel conversations. But the second is this, gospel preaching in the context of community. What's the first witness to whom Jesus points in our text? It was John the Baptist, a weird guy who preached and gathered a community of people around him who were awaiting a Messiah. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like a church to me. Here's your next blank. We need to recapture the art of inviting unbelieving friends and family to church. We need to recapture the art of inviting unbelieving friends and family to church. But why? I mean, is church really necessary? What do you get here that you couldn't get on TV? What do you get here that you couldn't get on a podcast? Is there anything here that your lost friends and family actually need? I would argue yes. Preaching in the context of community. You know what you can't get online or on TV? A pastor. Elders. Christian friends, brothers and sisters, these elements of our spiritual health are essential. John the Baptist looked people in the eye. He preached to them really hard things if you go back and look at John's sermons. And then when the sermon's over, the people are standing there next to each other. What was that? (laughs) And then they hash it out together in the context of community. Siblings came to him. Co-workers came to him. And they interacted with the things that he said. This is my job, and this is the job of our elders, to take the law and to take the story of Jesus, to take the Bible, and to bring it to you. I think about you guys and pray about you guys as I do this, because that's my job, to bring it to you in this time, in this place, in this season of your life. And then together, we got to figure this thing out. How do we, as a people, follow Christ? How do we trust Christ? This is why we go to church, because here we find our way together with the guidance of leaders that God has appointed for us. Jesus believed that John's preaching validated his own claims, so it seems that we should treat preaching the same way. So what does that mean in terms of application? Here's your next three blanks. First, bring your kids to church. Second, invite your unbelieving friends and family to church. And third, bring yourself to church. So bring your kids to church, invite your unbelieving friends and family to church, and bring yourself to church. Every one of us needs this, myself included, as a part of our spiritual growth. I grew up in the church. I was a church nerd. I used to sit on the front row so I could hear everything the preacher was saying. I would take voluminous notes. 
I've started preaching when I was 14. I've been in this for a long time. You know the worst season of my spiritual life? It was college. And it wasn't because of professors, the things that everybody told me to be afraid of. It's because I stopped being a part of a church community. I preached almost every Sunday during college. I was a part of an itinerant preaching ministry where we go to these little Southern Baptist churches throughout Alabama. We'd get up wicked early on Sunday morning and drive like three hours to these little rural churches. And I'd get up and I'd preach. Some, I remember one Sunday I preached to six people, and the next Sunday I preached to 600. It was very interesting. And while my preaching skills were developing and growing through that time, my spiritual life was a disaster. Unchecked sin, biblical worldview, out to lunch. Why? I didn't have you. I didn't have old men pouring into me. I didn't have brothers alongside me to keep me in line. I didn't have people younger than me to to raise up and to show the way to go. I wasn't a part of this. And so little by little, my spiritual life was falling away, even as I was becoming a great preacher. And as a senior in college, I realized I was a hypocrite. And so I quit preaching for about two years because I realized I needed this. And I didn't need it like once every six weeks. I needed it. I needed it more than weekly. I needed this to be my family and, and my life. And so I, I was converted to the church, in a sense. Lo and behold, about a year and a half later is when I knew I wanted to be a pastor. We need this very much so. Especially those who are not yet convinced of the truth of the gospel. Because here they can hear what's being said, and then they can struggle with it, with us. They can argue with us, and that's cool. We like to argue. We argued in Sunday school early, and it was great. We disagree and we chew on it together and we grow. Our session has been talking about how to make worship at FPC more comfortable for kids and for our unbelieving friends and, and family. We want you to be, feel super comfortable inviting every person on this list to come worship with us at Faith. And that's something we're going to be praying about throughout this summer as a congregation because there are barriers that are keeping us from connecting with lost folks. That is, if you're unable to comfortably invite people to church, we want to address that, and we want to change that. And to do that, we have to be willing to change as a community, change our habits, our practices, and our approach to what we're doing here. So be praying for that with us, that we be wise about that. It's our hope that every one of you would be able to invite these folks on your list to worship with us next Sunday. So that they would hear preaching and find a community that will help them come to terms with the truth of Jesus' teachings. I needed that. You need it. And these folks do too. So reaching the lost happens in a cross-section between gospel conversations, gospel preaching, and two other things. Here's your, uh, the next one. is gospel living. So when Jesus described the witnesses that validated his message, one of those was the difference between his way of life and the lives of the Pharisees or his opponents, the, the religious class in uh, Israel in those days. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
So the Pharisees are the people to whom Jesus is talking in our text. And there are two things that demonstrated that they didn't have eternal life, that they weren't saved. First, they didn't believe in Jesus. Simple. You don't believe in Jesus, you don't have salvation in a biblical sense. Second, Jesus says, they didn't have the love of God. What what does that mean? It means they don't love people the way that God loves people. Gospel conversations are important. And inviting people to church is important. But if your life is no different from anybody else's, if we love people the way the world loves people, why would anyone believe anything that we have to say? Why would they come to church with us? What is it that will make us stand out from the world? The answer is gospel living. What's that? Here's your next blank. Gospel living means living publicly and privately in a way that reflects love for God and Christ-like love for neighbor. Gospel living means living publicly and privately in a way that reflects love for God and Christ-like love for neighbor. So Jesus said that the whole law of God boils down to that, love for God and love for neighbor, neighbor. And we believe that when a person is saved... When they come to trust in Christ, that internal brokenness, that sin that is so destructive, begins to be healed. So we should be seeing growth in our lives and in our homes toward these two specific areas. Our love for God and our love for neighbor. It should be substantially different than the people around us. That alone should be a powerful witness to the truth of what Jesus says. So how's your love? How is your relationship with God? Are you living out of a sense that he loves you, that he cares for you, that you are pleasing in his sight because of the work of Christ? And is your love for him growing day by day? And how's your relationships with other people? You love them as Christ does? does? What does that even mean? It means turning the other cheek. It means forgiving, even when someone's been blatantly offensive. It means grace and truth. It means making ourselves sacrificially present with others, being overly generous, being honest as Christ cherished people and also challenged people in the context of relationship. We're called to do the same. We love as we hope others would love us. If we lived in this way, enamored with the triune God of Scripture and loving as Jesus loves, then the message of Jesus would be a very easy sell, would it not? Because the proof's in the pudding. Gospel living, love for God and love for neighbor would easily validate the truth of the gospel. So reaching the lost happens in a cross-section between gospel conversations, gospel preaching, gospel living, and last, prayer. Prayer for the work of God's Holy Spirit. So at some level, all this external work, the conversations, the preaching, the living, all of it will be fruitless without the internal work of God. God has to do a work within the people that you wrote down for them to see the truth of Christ's message and to believe. And Jesus himself points to that in our text. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? 
Why have you never heard his voice, seen his form, have his word abiding in you? Why? For you do not believe the one whom he has. People must hear the voice of God. His word must abide deeply within them. And we can't do that. It's a work of God. Therefore, we pray. We pray for these people that God would do this miracle, that he would open their eyes to their sin, that he would help them to see the beauty of the gospel, that he would give them faith. So let me ask you the question. Does gospel conversation seem impossible for you? Is that a really hard sell? Am I not going to convince you this week to go talk to your neighbors? Okay. You feel uncomfortable inviting somebody to church for next Sunday. Okay. Do you feel like your life... And your love is an, inadequate, is an inadequate representation of the gospel's truth. I'll even give you that one. I feel that way a lot too. And can you pray? The answer is yes. Pray for the children in our church. Pray for the other names that you've listed here. Another prayer focus this summer is we're going to be praying for the lost in each of our personal networks. And you've already identified these people. You've made your prayer list. Maybe you need to make it a little longer, but you've got it. We can do all the gospel conversations and preaching and living that we want. If God doesn't move, if God doesn't work, then no one will be saved. Not one person. He has to be at work. So pray. Ask him to win these people to himself, to coax them, to woo them to Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus looks out at the field and says, it's wide unto harvest, it's ready for the picking, and he's talking about people being saved. What's the imperative that he tells people? Go have gospel conversations. Invite these people to hear my preaching. Live differently. That's not the imperative that he gives in Matthew 9. He says, the field is wide unto the harvest, therefore pray. Pray. That God would send workers out into the harvest. We need the work of God. Or else our activities will not reach the lost. And all four of these, or out of all four of these different activities, I think you can actually probably do all of them. But you know you can pray. You can pray for these people every day. Reaching the lost happens in the cross-section between gospel conversations, gospel preaching, gospel living, and prayer. Can you start with prayer? Can you commit to pray every day this week for these people on your list? Can you pray for yourself that God would show you which of these other three activities you should embark on? Can you pray for our church that we would reach the lost? The answer is yes, you can pray. So join me and join our elders in praying. Don't be deceived into thinking you have no part in this game, that you have no part in reaching the lost, because every one of us, from oldest to youngest, from most mature to least mature, every one of us has a part to play, and we all start with prayer. We'll work out from there. So will you join me in praying with the hopes that these other three factors will fall into place? Rather than closing us in prayer, I'm going to ask Chris to come and to just play maybe, I don't know, a couple of verses of a song to give you some space to pray. 
for the people on your list.